0: I'm always trying to look for places that tell a story in some way, which, which can be hard. I don't, I don't think I succeed every single week, but that's, that's always my goal is, is to write a column that's interesting in and of itself. Just illustrate something about the city, about the culture today, or is just really like interesting and weird and funny. I definitely aim for that.
1: You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm Editor-in-Chief Matt Rodbard.
2: Here with senior editor Anna Hiesel. On today's show, Matt's talking to Hannah Goldfield, the restaurant critic at The New Yorker. I'll be talking to Danielle Walker of Against All Grain. But let's talk about Hannah first.
1: Hannah Goldfield has been writing about restaurants for The New Yorker for years For the legendary Tables for Two column, I think we've all read maybe hundreds of those columns.
2: Literally hundreds. I recently learned that Tables for Two has been around since the 1930s. Which is crazy, but Hannah's kind of switching things up with the column a little bit and taking it into a little bit of a new direction.
1: Yeah, she's she's really like the first dedicated restaurant critic in the magazine's history. The column is much longer, and we talk about how she decides on what restaurant she is reviewing each month, and how these restaurants, which are all based in New York City, oftentimes reflect a larger story. Uh, it's a really fascinating conversation.
2: Here's Matt talking to Hannah Goldfield.
1: Hannah Goldfield, welcome to the Taste Podcast.
0: Thank you so much.
1: I've been reading you for a while. I think oftentimes restaurant critics are thought of as like, it's just like your opinion, you're like blogging. Some people really do say that like you're literally just blogging, but really restaurant criticism is about reporting. And I want to get into that. But I also I I really want to hear a little bit about the method at The New Yorker. And and really first, like, what are your marching orders um, for tables for two? Mm. Um, You have an international audience, a national audience. um, But you're writing about New York City restaurants for the most part. How do you negotiate that?
0: Hmm. Yeah. I mean, one of the nice things about being I'm, I'm not allowed to call myself the first uh, critic at the New Yorker because there have been so many iterations of people writing about food over the magazine's very long history. Um, but in recent history, I am the first like designated person who's writing tables for two, and um, I would have to check this with with our uh, archive uh, librarians. But I think that I think that the length um, of tables for two is the longest it's ever been. So that so it's like definitely a new era for the column, um, and so. Uh, what's been nice about that is that I didn't really, I don't really have marching orders. I mean, I didn't come in and I I wasn't told, you know, we want you to do X, Y, or Z. There are many conversations about it, of course, but I feel like I've been able to Take the reins, which is both scary and exciting. Um, <laughs> I mean,
1: it's a thrilling task. Totally, be the first of anything, I'll, I'll say yeah. first. you know, you, you, you covered yourself there with the preface. <laughs> but You really are writing the longest reviews ever in the New Yorker. Um, I mean, but your audience is all over the place. Are you trying yeah. to pick places that represent the way food is going in America through these New York City restaurants?
0: Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's an it's an evolving process for sure, and one that I'm like. Trying to kind of rethink every week, and there are a lot of constrictions, just that you know, both that, that that both allow that and don't allow that. Um, so, but yes, I'm I'm always trying to look for places that, you know, tell a story, uh, in some way, which which can be hard. I don't I don't think I succeed every single week, but that's that's always my goal is is so, is is to write a column that's interesting in and of itself, whether or not. You are going
1: to going to be able to dine there,
0: dine there, or go there. Yeah, yeah, something that just illustrates something about the city, about the culture today, um, or is just really like interesting and weird and funny. Um, yeah. I definitely aim for that, um, and I do. I, it's it's a point of pride that I do get a lot of feedback. I mean, not maybe not a lot, but a good amount of like Instagram DMs and mm-hmm. and Twitter messages where people say explicitly, you know, I live in Australia, I'm never going to eat. At these restaurants, but it's super fun for me to read these columns.
1: Yeah. It's an extension of Talk of the Town, really. Yeah, because that's exactly. the spirit of those pieces. I mean, do you? Does your editor go out to these restaurants and kind of do that cross reference, which a lot of outlets do?
0: Uh, not like strictly. No, I mean, if if you ask my editors, they'd probably complain that I don't take them enough. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no one wants to go their boss. Come on.
0: <laughs> I actually love. All, I I have multiple editors. Yeah. Um and and. David Remnick was just giving me a little crap about, he's like, Why, when are you going to take me out to a meal? Which, um, which I would love to do, but he's also so high profile I feel like he would just blow my cover
1: immediately. It's true. I mean, I was wondering if Remnick had ever dined with you. Um, who does dine with you, though? That's a question I have. I mean, do you I know you're Helen Rosner, who's been on the Taste Podcast and is a friend. Does, does she go out? Do you guys go out together? She
0: has been out. We have been out together. She um, came with me to uh, Ocheval recently. Yeah. She's um, from Chicago? She's from, from Chicago. Yeah. yeah, and also she's just like... I. I'd love to take her more often mm-hmm. because that that meal was great proof of that. I mean, I already knew this, obviously. But the best people to take often are the, are the people who want to focus on the food as much as you do and who are really yeah. informed and smart and have interesting things to say about it and, like, amazing frames of reference. And so she was just – I actually went with her. Um, so our shared online uh, editor came with us, and the three of us just had, like, a great mind meld. And we were yeah. just so, like – hyper-focused on what we were eating and the environment and it was really really helpful. What's
1: the hot take on Oshaval in New York? What's um, the hot take?
0: My my hot take yeah. or I I think it's like you know a burger is a is a burger uh-huh. to some degree um and that was kind of what I that was kind of where I came down I think the burger is totally fine. It's not worth waiting. I mean no burger is truth. worth waiting 3 hours for. It's the
1: truth. It's
0: just crazy. Like you can make your own burger. Oh, Anyone yes. can make their own burger and it would yeah. taste almost as good as that. Um, but I loved the bologna sandwich. Oh yeah, that's cool. <laughs> so yeah,
1: I wanted to ask you. I think we had Robert Sitzeman and and Pete Wells and um, Bill Addison in L.A. and I'm uh, just talking to a lot of critics because then critics have a lot to say and have great minds. But what's the biggest story in NYC restaurants that we just are not covering?
0: Mm. I don't know if if there's a if there's a big issue that we're totally not covering because I think we're at peak restaurant coverage Mm -hmm. right now. And I'm sure, I mean, I'm sure there are stories that have not been uncovered, but I'm also like to look at it from a different angle. I'm sort of amazed by how many stories are suddenly are being told by all of these great outlets, Mm -hmm. including yours and Mm -hmm. Eater and Grub Street. And now, you know, the New Yorker has such ramped up coverage and the times is like, Operating um, the highest level, yeah, absolutely. Completely. So, so it's not like I don't, I haven't been walking around thinking like, oh my god, no one's telling the, this story. I, I haven't, I haven't felt like they're burning things, um, but I do feel like there are things that aren't getting enough coverage. Um, I feel like people are, are on them. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I know I, I listened to the um, to your interview with um, Sitsema whose name I never that's good. Is that right? It's Sitsuma? good, yeah. And I was fascinated by what his answer to the question um, which was about immigration Um, and then I think it was yesterday Eater published a big package on um, Mexican food and that and there was a there was a piece I can't remember who wrote it um, about specifically undocumented workers in Mexican restaurants and it was really good Mm -hmm. and I felt like I hadn't read that Mm -hmm. before and was so glad to see it covered
1: I've asked both Pete Wells and and Put Robert Sitsema, this question. I really wanted your take. What should the next New York City mayor do to help small restaurant owners survive in this really crazy climate?
0: Yeah, so I've I've thought about that not a whole lot, but um, I think it's the answer to that is sort of the answer to the question of. It sort of doubles as the answer to the question of what stories are not being covered. Um, I think the it's, it's a real estate issue kind of first and foremost. Um, and, uh, you know, it, there's huge problems with real estate in terms of just businesses in general. But the restaurant question is an especially interesting one. Um, and... I I don't know yeah. <laughs> exactly but really abstractly or broadly speaking it seems like there should be h- huge tax breaks there should be you know options for rent control there should be it should there should just be like a category yeah. of um you know uh uh rent, I guess. I mean, it should tie in to possibly
1: to like historic uh, preservation societies. Totally. And if a business has been Absolutely. around, it's grandfathered into a lease. Yes. Um, we've also talked a lot about um, imposing um, a tax on vacancy. Mm-hmm. So after right. a year of vacancy, the, the landlord is uh, is given a tax uh, that is a percentage of the market rate rent, right. which would then prevent them from kicking out tenants and squatting on empty spaces for literally a decade. I lived near, on Smith Street in Brooklyn and there's empty spaces for a decade which is terrible for everyone right
0: those seem like such obvious things and um, it's it's interesting this is a story that I feel like I maybe someone has written this but I, I I've noticed it um, a lot just from eating out is that like so many new restaurants are opening in, in hotels which is obviously a real estate thing too and and some of them are to some degree like small Kind of upstarts being given the chance to mm-hmm. open places. A lot of them are, are restaurateurs who are already super established. Um, but yeah. the fact is, like that's the. Only, it seems like even the super established people, the only way you can afford to open a restaurant is if you have the backing of a huge mm-hmm. developer who's putting together a, 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 you know, an enormous hotel. You bring um, up
1: a great point. I think Angela De Mayuga at the Standard is is somebody who's going to hopefully be placing rising stars and maybe people who aren't getting those big deals into the properties around the country Yeah, and there should be more yeah of that. which
0: is cool and it's great but that shouldn't be the only yes. the only way to open a place like that it shouldn't be to ride on the coattails of some multi-billion dollar developer um so uh, yeah it's on it, to some degree i'm glad it's happening and i'm grateful for, for grateful for people like her who are being really thoughtful about it and on the other hand it just feels like that can't be the only no. path
1: how, tell me how much are you dining out each week like what's what's like really your your week like
0: um i am dining out almost almost every day and often on those days twice a day um i just feel like i have to to keep up with a weekly deadline um and and i and i love to frankly i mean there are definitely weeks where i'm like oh god i really need a night at home um but to have enough options of places to write about because, you know, many times I'll go somewhere that seems really promising and ends up being not that interesting or I feel like I've gone too soon or I decide if it's too late and no one really cares anymore. Oh, or... that's the worst like, <laughs> to review
1: is myself. And that's like the worst when you put like two meals into a place and you realize yeah. this place has no story. Exactly. And it's past. Exactly. That happens to you a bit?
0: For sure, yeah. And there was like – I definitely had a learning curve where I was kind of just like, okay, I'll go to one restaurant this week, you know, three times or, or maybe two. And I just realized at a certain point that I was like – that was not sustainable and that I just had to – just go hard yeah. and and have like a, as much of a safety net as possible. So, yeah.
1: How do you like organize the reservations? I mean, is that a do you have an assistant who helps you with booking? Oh god no.
0: It takes up way more time than anyone would think and it's not that interesting, but it is it, every week feels like a puzzle that I'm never, I'm never quite solving and I'm often like texting 10 people oh. at like 4:30 being like Anybody want to come to dinner at 5? Yeah. And it, amazingly, some like I, I I almost always find someone. I have a lot of friends who have, like, you know, it's the gig economy. So yeah. I have friends who are writing books or friends mm-hmm. who I have. One of my closest friends is a theater director. So her schedule is, like, super flexible during the day. Um, and so I'm – but every week is just kind of – I'm just, like, pinch hitting, just trying oh. to pull things together at the last minute. Oh, yeah. Um
1: do you go to the five o'clock reservation because that's the only spot on resi that's open for some of these new places?
0: yeah, oftentimes yeah. or um yeah that that I feel like that's the the most common reason is is yeah, because you can't get in otherwise, but sometimes also like I'll just be in the city and I'll have had lunch at one or something, and I'll f- figure I'll have dinner as early as I can so I can get home earlier and you know just yeah. whatever every day is a is a different calculation
1: <laughs> and like let me uh, Tell me about the deadline, I mean a weekly column is
0: rough yeah <laughs> how do you
1: how do you negotiate the deadline
0: um i I just do I mean it's definitely it's like i w- one thing I love about writing for print is that um you just like there's so much more accountability there. I mean there should be more i mm-hmm. I should be just as accountable when writing for mm-hmm. the website, but i you know I can't help but think, well, like if this doesn't go up. Today, it's like it can just as easily go up tomorrow. That's not. There's no question of space or whatever. Whereas for print, it's like you have, and especially at the New Yorker. I mean, this is true of any of any you know high functioning print publication. Mm-hmm. But there are so many people who are counting on you. Like, there's just no, there's no wiggle room. It's like the system is so strict and organized. Yeah. Um, I
1: mean, the fact checking is legendary. Exactly. And and, and the so copy
0: editing is the same. Is, and, and yeah, and it's so it's it's such a beautifully tightly run ship. And I actually worked at The New Yorker for um, six years as a fact checker and loved it so much and loved that process. So I just I just have a deep respect mm-hmm. for that process, which is really motivating in terms of deadlines. But that said, every week I'm sitting in front of a blank document for hours, yeah. like pulling my hair out, you know, thinking like, what the hell am I gonna say about this place, you know, going for walks
1: does it come down to the wire sometimes like for leads oh absolutely yeah yeah,
0: absolutely i would say almost every week um you know very occasionally it will just the concept will sort of come together like while i'm at the restaurant or something and i'll think oh i know exactly what i'm going to say about this place but more often than not i'll sit down and realize like oh god (laughs) what i have nothing to say here and then i have to just like pull it out of myself um and, you know, it's always it's – it's been fine so far. No, it's been great.
1: And let's let's get into the restaurants. I want to talk food. Um, just give me three of your best meals this year so far. We're going to start with a positive re- uh, listener. We're going to go negative, so don't just think this is all positive. But three best meals of the year so far.
0: I mean, in terms of, of reviews, because, I mean, most of my meals are I, – I mostly go out for reviews. Uh, I really loved uh, Leonti, mm-hmm. which I, I gave a very – positive review too mm-hmm. um i had two really excellent meals there
1: who's a chef there let's r- remind listeners H-
0: yes his name is adam leonti yep. um and he came up at uh, vetri in philadelphia and he's this young um i believe he's italian-american he's definitely spent a lot of time in italy and he's just a total master of bread yeah. um and just makes amazing breads and also cookies and pastas mm-hmm. and uh, I'm like a carb yeah. carb freak. So uh, he, There's so much
1: bad carbs out there, right? Yeah. So when you nail it, as like somebody who has a lot of carbs, as you, per your job, you yes. just fall in love when you have a great cake piece Absolutely. cake or some breads.
0: Yeah, and he's just doing really interesting things with milling his own grains yes. and um, just taking it so seriously, and I just really, and but, but also being, you know, keeping it fun and like, it's, it's an Upper West Side restaurant. It does have a certain kind of stuffiness to it that's, <laughs> you know, playing to type in that neighborhood. But I also found it kind of, like, retro and fun, um, and I found the food surprising, and I just I, – I really enjoyed it. Um, another meal that I absolutely loved was – there's this place in Elmhurst called Lasa Fresh Food, mm-hmm. uh, which is, like, a bigger kind of outpost of um, – another place called Lhasa Fast Food, Mm -hmm. uh, which is in the back, famously in the back of a cell phone store in Jackson Heights, and they sell, they make and sell very good momos. It's a Tibetan place, and so they opened this bigger restaurant in Elmhurst um, that I just really loved. It's like, the focus is, they have momos, but the focus is a little bit more on hand-pulled Noodles. Yeah. Um, oh,
1: beautiful. Would you write about this for your I am
0: col- writing about it, yeah. So, yeah. So That's the, another column that I'm... That I'm so writing.
1: wonderful. So I wanted to hear about the diversity of your restaurants that you cover. Really, yeah. it sounds like you have a blank slate and you can cover what you want. Yeah. Yeah, which
0: is great. Um, yeah, yeah, I feel really grateful for that. Um, it's It makes the job a little bit harder because I'm only one person. Um, and, you know, like the times tends to be... Um, sort of divided between Lagaya Michonne and Pete Wells. And
1: out in LA there have two critics at the yes. Times as well. Yeah,
0: and they're doing an interesting thing because they're not really it's not clear what their dividing line is. It's, they're, they're sort of both just yeah, they seem on pretty equal ground in terms of categories. Bill told us
1: on the podcast a few episodes ago that uh they really just negotiate between the two of them. Yeah.
0: So that's, pretty that's great. Cool. Yeah. That's pretty that's cool. That's really cool. Yeah. So I, I have no one to negotiate with, which uh, is great. Yeah. But it means that I I feel like I'm trying to keep track of lots of different restaurants in lots of different neighborhoods in all kinds of price points and yeah. styles and whatever. And I and I do try really hard to do um to keep it to keep it, you know, mixed up. Um and So, I try to do places that feel a little bit more like that, places that feel like they will be discoveries for readers, like like lots of fresh food. Um, But then also places that are super buzzy and that everyone's gonna have not everyone but that lots of people will have read about on Eater or Grub Street or just you know places people have heard of because there's a big chef
1: but attached. Hannah you know you're really changing the destiny of these restaurants for good or for bad with your review I know that's something maybe it's difficult to hear but I really believe that you and Wells and a few, really a small handful of other critics maybe Ryan Sutton in New York like can make or break restaurants do you, you think about this right
0: I do think about it yeah it's it's funny I don't I, f- I I I know I must have some power. I mean, obviously, the New Yorker is like an f- extremely well-read read. and, and yeah. prominent magazine. Um, it's I'd be curious to know. I mean, I, I've seen some. I've sort of observed myself some firsthand kind of case studies of this happening. Um, but for the most part, it's a little hard to know how much influence I'm having. Like, like there, yeah, there are definitely instances where I'll write about a place that is. Really small and kind of under the radar, and I know that that mm-hmm. it's it's transformed their business at least for a little while. I always think of this one place that I actually wrote about many, many years ago before I was the official uh, restaurant critic back when I was a fact checker, and the job was shared by staffers. I was one of the people that wrote tables for two um, and there was this amazing restaurant in kind of on the border of Crown Heights, I guess, on like a really industrial feeling corner. It was a French restaurant and it was just like if you didn't walk by it you weren't no one was going in and and there was no reason to walk by it it was like next to like a gas station that had, was crawling with cats yeah. um and it was so good it was this incredibly uh, amazingly good french restaurant it, called? it was called thirst baravin um but it was all like one word uh
1: ooh tricky name
0: really one tricky word. name i know three words in name. one Ugh. Um, the wine shop is great. The wine shop is thriving. Great. But they opened this restaurant. They found this amazing chef. And I think maybe they did some of the cooking themselves, too. It was a couple who still own the wine shop. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I know that after I wrote about it, they had a big boom in business for a while. But it wasn't enough. I mean, they went out of business not that long after yeah. that. I think if they opened there now, it would be way different because that neighborhood has changed so sure. much. Um, but anyway, so that that was an example of a place where I really saw my own influence. But otherwise, I'm su- I, I, I'm sure I'm having it. I just it's hard to to chart it exactly. Yeah,
1: and it's unfair uh, for me to really kind of emphasize uh this because I think mean, there's we talked about real estate there's a lot of other factors that play into yeah. the overall success of a restaurant i i contend that five years is like 50 years now for a restaurant yeah. to be open and if you can make that five-year mark you're probably gonna make the 20-year mark but to get to the five years is nearly impossible yeah stay in if you discuss stay in the media cycle you got to get people interested you got to have a robust takeout if that's your model it's just so challenging i
0: think that's yeah that's absolutely true and and i try not to have like too outsized of an, of an influence, you know, where that's possible. Like, I'm not going to, you know, give a really small mom and pop Never. restaurant, like, I'm not going to trash them even if I didn't like the food and and, and seal their fate. Yeah,
1: yeah, It's not um, the spirit of any restaurant criticism or music right, criticism. You don't, exactly. you don't punch down. It's right, really right. You don't it. punch
0: down and, um, yeah, and, and but in terms of giving – I, I I've been asked a lot about I think do you worry about giving a small place too positive of a review and and like overwhelming them somehow and in New York I just don't think that that's actually an issue it, for the reasons you're saying the cycle moves so fast that it's yeah. like if someone opens a restaurant in New York they're a they're ready okay um, I think or they, or they should be they should be
1: <laughs> yeah
0: um and B it's like you got to ride that wave. And because it's, it's hard to write it no matter, you know, how <laughs> yeah, big it is. So, if, yeah.
1: Let's talk about, um, you know, some, some bad restaurants. I think for, sure. for the sake of service, the Pot Taste podcast, we want to be service oriented <laughs> to our listeners. Um, you're clearly not going to be talking about sm- too many small name places, but maybe right. some meals that disappointed you. I know C- Cedric von Griechten's new restaurant was not... Awesome for you. Yeah,
0: I mean, I, I name the
1: restaurant so we I can...
0: hope I was balanced about that. I sometimes it's it can be really hard in a sh- in a short review, yeah. to be as nuanced as I want to be because I I think that place is interesting and I did really like some of the food. What's but it called? It's called um Wian. I, right. I think I'm pronouncing it yep. correctly. Um, uh, you know, I went there once and had a meal that I really enjoyed, and then I went back and was like really disappointed by some of the food. It, ultimately the judgment is mine, but I, but I do bring people to eat with me. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I I brought two people who, one of them is a friend who's a chef and she was like super, she was super disappointed in a lot of the food and really specific about why, which was helpful to me. But that, but I felt like I, I had been rooting for it after the first meal and then to have her kind of help me pick apart why things weren't so great. Um, you know, then, but then I I went back a third time because I felt like, and I don't always do that. Um, you know, I, I have to stay within a budget, and depending on how expensive a place is, I go anywhere from I I never go less than twice mm-hmm. for a place like that, which is fairly mm-hmm. pricey. Normally, I wouldn't go more than twice, and I I went I went a third time, and I just felt felt like it was just uneven. Um, but I wouldn't say that I had I had any like terrible meals there. I would, no. yeah. I mean, and I think it's the kind of place that could get better. Yeah, ever.
1: and I think it's the kind of cuisine that also it's it's Balinese, is that right?
0: It's Indonesian. Indonesian.
1: Uh, um you know, it takes a little bit of time to get the seasoning right in the restaurant and yeah. just get you know, get it get get it going, right? Yeah. I,
0: yeah, I think so. Yeah. Uh so yeah, so I wouldn't put that in a category of a really bad meal. <laughs> Sorry,
1: I really did not. jump no, the gun okay. on no, that. No, no, so, it's
0: good. It's that's it was definitely not a I didn't give it a rave review.
1: Alright, which ones are really bad?
0: um the worst meal I can think of having had recently was, um, at that, that Japanese restaurant where you fish for your, for your dinner, which I reviewed last year. Mm. Um, and it was just horrible. I mean, beyond but and I, I, even though I feel like they're big and they can take it, I, I, I feel some, I don't want to go too far in, in, in trashing them, but their chain from Japan, you know, they came in clearly with a lot of money. They, yeah. you know, opened this huge, shiny, fancy two or three-story restaurant. It's like, I, I don't... You're fishing for
1: your <laughs> How the fuck would that make sense to anyone? It doesn't, it doesn't make it sense. It seems disgusting. It's so
0: novelty-based. Um, yeah, it's a little... It's a little disgusting. I mean, you know, there are other restaurants where, like, they keep the fish in a tank and they take the fish out of the tank and cook it for you. And so, it's like that concept isn't yeah, of so it's part crazy. Part of Chinatown, it's great. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, Chinatown and yeah, and elsewhere. And but yeah, the fishing thing—it's just like it's just so gimmicky. And you know, they—I don't know. It just—it just there's something just kind of icky about it. Um, but beyond that, they didn't prepare the fish well, <laughs> and I was like, I kind of couldn't believe and maybe it's gotten better cuz i went really early on um but i also went there more than once and i just felt like the fish wasn't good like mm-hmm.
1: yeah, what's the point more. yeah
0: it just yeah it's like it wasn't as good as like you know conveyor belt sushi um so there's sort of no excuse for that yeah
1: are you rooting for any cuisines to to make it to new york or any any chefs to make it to new york are you are you are you a fan are you are you looking for something in particular
0: um that's a great question that I haven't. I think I'm like so kind of spun around trying to keep, yeah, keep up with what's what is opening that I haven't really like ha- taken the time to stop and think. What do I want more of? Um, yeah. But um, you know, I think it's a it's a great time to be eating in New York. So maybe that's part of why I haven't been mm-hmm. thinking about it. Like I'm super yeah. excited by a lot of the places that are opening. Um, just like the incredible range of regional Chinese food, as a person, I think probably like mm-hmm. Chinese food is my. I mean, it's a big category, but I would probably name it as my as my favorite. Um, so to feel like you can now just explore the entire country almost within the five boroughs is just yeah. like such a, an amazing. It's remarkable thing. Yeah, it's so so great. Um, one thing I think I that I, that. I am seeing more of and I hope continues um, is kind of food of, I guess you could call it the African diaspora or, or African food. Um, I have a review coming out um, on Friday of of this new place called Taranga, which is the cafe in the Africa center, which is like a cultural institution in East Harlem, a beautiful building right on central park. And um, it's this uh, Senegalese born chef named Pierre Tiam. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is really, really good. And, Great
1: to hear. Pierre is an yeah. author, too. Yes. Author. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's super
0: famous. Yeah. yeah. Um, I loved it. I, it's it's a pretty casual
1: mm-hmm.
0: kind of place. It's like he, they call it, they call what they serve, seasonal bowls, which I wish they didn't because that makes it sound like it's like digging or something. Yeah. The food is so good and so interesting. And it's really focused on kind of humble grains and starches. Yeah. Um, and I know that um, J.J. Johnson has a really similar concept opening very soon and yep. i'm really excited by that
1: jj yeah i think his he's a really 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 underrated chef in new york i agree I he's amazing yeah
0: i think i think henry at the life hotel is, yeah. is really great
1: you reviewed that right
0: i actually didn't and oh, it's funny no. i i wish i had um yeah. I, the reason I didn't, when it opened, I went and then I, I thought that um, Field Trip, which is his next yeah. place, was going to be opening around the same time. And I also thought that it was, I didn't realize that it, that it was going to be like a counter service thing. So I was actually waning because it sounded like a more obvious concept for a review mm-hmm. since it, it's basically like a rice restaurant, I think is the idea. So oh, I sure. thought, I thought, okay, he's opening this like <clears throat> what he's calling a Pan-African kind of fine dining place and it's in a hotel and that sounds kind of cool, but just felt like there would be more fodder
1: for a rice restaurant of course exactly great stories and if i but if
0: i had known that because i I think that was like over a year ago if i had known that field trip was going to take longer i would have i would have um reviewed both um
1: i think we've just like really uh we we've illustrated your internal debate yes, about what you review. I absolutely. think this is really interesting to, to kind of witness in real time about totally. what, how you think about chefs and you have to really be on top of not just openings, but like long lead yes. openings because you don't want to burn out a chef and yes. review their second project when the third is going to be different.
0: Exactly. And and ah. the restaurant industry is crazy, like
1: mm-hmm.
0: in that way. I mean, I mean, I think just opening businesses in New York is crazy. It's like there are so many things that delay places so often like I, I i try to be super stringent about um you know reading everything florence fabricant puts out yeah. and everything greb street does and eater just to just keep track of openings but oftentimes people or publications will put out these packages of like spring openings or whatever and like nine out of ten of the places won't open when mm-hmm. they're supposed to so yeah. i'm sort of like always just eagerly anticipating places and then they just take longer which is you know just how it goes. do you ever just
1: go for walks in neighborhoods to see what's out in the street
0: um I do sometimes yeah I wish i I wish i, I wish I did more of that yeah. um you know to refer to S- Siuma again who I'm just such a huge fan of his yeah. um I wish i i I don't quite feel like I have the bandwidth to do what he does or the energy frankly like mm-hmm. it's not quite my. My thing. No one does. Yeah, yeah, I that, yeah, him. that's no yeah. One does. I shouldn't be um, I shouldn't be like giving myself a hard time. About you shouldn't. That. He's no. a really unusual yeah. guy. Yeah. Um you know, and Jonathan Gold is the same way, just like that yeah. drive and and we're also at very different places in our lives.
1: <laughs> yeah, and different outlets too. And I think, you know, Eater has been able to you, you just know, mentioned your your print deadline. Yeah, it's like exactly. Very different animal. Exactly. Right. So you're right. both doing it.
0: But but I do but I do feel inspired by him and mm-hmm. I do try, you know um, on days when I'm sort of in between deadlines, which are there aren't that many of them, but I do try to, to walk around and like yeah. put my phone in my pocket or my bag or whatever and actually just look up and see what's around me. Um,
1: I wanted to ask you, uh, we ask all guests on the Taste podcast, if there was a, a book project or a cookbook project that you could that you could write without you know, a deadline or financial obligations or whatever, like it's just the d- dream project, what would that project be?
0: Gosh, um, I don't know. I've I've had some like vague ideas, which I'm almost like hesitant to share because it's embarrassing. Oh, it's a safe (laughs) space to workshop.
1: It's a safe book
0: ideas. I mean, I've talked I've talked to a few agents, and I would love to work on a a, like a longer lead project like that at some point. Um, But I don't know. I mean, I guess really broadly speaking, books that I've uh, that I. I've really liked that. Have like been written by friends recently, for example. That seem like sort of the kind of book I could write are these, um, kind of like part pop history, part memoir type of of books. Um, uh, Bianca Bosker is is a good friend of mine, and she wrote this book called Cork Dork, mm-hmm. where basically she decided to train to be a sommelier. Um, so a little like heat esque, I guess. Um, yeah. But it ended up the the book, it, you know, was. A memoir but it was also just like this really deep dive into the world of wine and I thought that that was so interesting. I don't know if I I would want to do like that kind of gonzo journalism exactly exactly, but something like that that's both you know personal account of an experience and then also like a a really cool broad history Um, and my colleague Lauren Collins wrote an amazing book about learning to speak French um, that ended up being about language and um, linguistics and you know immigration and it just like i love that i love that mix
1: it is it, it, to just write about food i feel like it would just light your your curiosity and your your, your journalistic yeah
0: pops. totally thank anna you Goldfield, thank
1: you for joining the taste podcast of
0: course thank you for having me
1: here's anna talking to author danielle walker
2: Welcome to the Taste Podcast, Danielle. Thank you. Your latest book, you're the author of four books. Yes. But your latest book is Eat What You Love. It's a book that really focuses on comfort food. It does. And it appropriately came
3: out this December, right? Yes. Yeah, that was was planned (laughs) when everybody's craving those things. Yeah, so it's comfort food, family favorites, but all done in a healthier manner.
2: Have you had, have you found yourself kind of Correcting in a lot of misconceptions about the fact that there is grain-free comfort food.
3: Yes. I and the think, fact that it's possible. Yes. And that it tastes good. Yeah. You know, um, that's kind of always been my goal since writing my cookbooks and having to change my diet for autoimmune disease is just, I don't want to eat bland food. And I think a lot of people do feel like if they commit to a paleo lifestyle or going gluten-free or whatever it is that they're going to have to just give up all the flavors and textures and traditions that are tied to food. And that would Really, what eat what you love was about was kind of trying to say nope. That's that doesn't have to be that way. You can actually enjoy food. It can look and taste like the food that you remember. It's just free of some of those common allergens, and it it tastes delicious.
2: <laughs> what are you finding that people are cooking the most out of the, out of the new book?
3: Oh gosh, my baked goods are kind of always the top of the line, just because that's something that you can't take, you know, an old recipe and convert it very easily with all of those. Uh, alternative flowers. So I would say there's a Pop Tart recipe in there. Mm. There's some pizza pockets and then there's a nut free sandwich bread that people are making like crazy just because so many elementary schools these days are going nut free for allergy purposes. And so a lot of people have, I've been really excited about that. And then I'd say on the dinner and savory side, I'm seeing there's a chicken and dumplings recipe. And then a lot of the really easy just sheet pan meals or one pot type of meal. So mm-hmm. there's a chicken piccata that I feel like I'm seeing on Instagram a lot people are making. I think it might feel the most accessible to kind of get started with. Totally. Um, And it's just really beautiful. Yes. One pot. Familiar (laughs) ingredients. Yep. Yep. And I do a little bit of a twist. There's some artichoke hearts and spinach in it. So the colors are just really pretty. And yeah, I think people they're drawn to the photo, I think, probably. There's a photo for every recipe, which is great. Um, So, but I think, you know, I think we eat with our eyes first. So they're probably turning to it because it's so pretty in the photo.
2: (laughs) Definitely. Were there any things that you really, really wanted to convert into a grain-free version? that just didn't work? Like, were there any things that just didn't make it into the book? Yeah,
3: there's there's a couple things. Um, not too many. I feel like I was able to get to the list that I had. There's one, it's mac and cheese. I just, I could have done it if, you know, if I would have done homemade pasta and then a homemade dairy-free cheese sauce, but it just felt like it was too much. I mean, the the whole Reason why people love mac and cheese is because you pour it out of a box and mix mm-hmm. two things into yeah. it. Even if you make it homemade, it's still, you know, noodles that are already made. So that one I kind of just put on the table. I was like, let's shelve this for now. Maybe, maybe I'll come back to it later. Um, and then there was one that didn't make the book, but that actually has become the top visited web website recipe, which is so funny. I, I didn't know if people would like it. So I cut it, but it was a dairy free queso dip. Like I used to go to Chili's back in the day and get that skillet mm-hmm. queso. And I think I can oh, yeah. get the whole thing by myself. And, uh, and then a lot of, you know, Velveeta and melty cheeses at home. And so I created this one where you simmer white sweet potatoes and carrots with some salsa and some garlic and you puree it and add some, like, you know, ground beef with taco seasoning. And I didn't know if people would jump on board because it felt a little bit odd. But I put it on my blog after it got cut from Eat What You Love mm-hmm. and it it's the top viewed recipe and it's like so funny, just people are obsessed with it. So I guess it should have gone in the book. But can wow. go in the next book.
2: <laughs> Speaking of mac and cheese, do you have opinions about Gluten-free pastas, are there any that you buy or do you always make your own grain-free pastas?
3: So that's one of the things that I've just kind of let go pasta-wise. Grain-free, there's some on the market, but a lot of them are filled with a lot of starches and gums and things that – make me bloated so I don't eat them but for my kids they can do some you know gluten-free pastas I like the chickpea one I think it's called banza or bonza um and then I just buy them brown rice pasta usually so Mm -hmm. those have grains but um yeah, those are the best ones, I think. There is not a great grain-free pasta on the market yet besides the chickpea one.
2: How do you make it at home? Like, what is, what is your
3: formula like when you make your own handmade pasta? I don't do a lot of handmade pasta. Oh, okay. I've gotten to the point where I'm totally fine using spaghetti squash mm-hmm. or spiralized zucchini noodles. That, to me, it just it does the trick, and that is okay. That's kind of one of the things where I'm like, you know what, that pasta... It's never gonna taste like the pasta I used to know and love, so I would rather just eat some veggies instead. And the sauce for me is really where it's at. So I don't mind, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes I'll just serve I have my, this sauce that was my great great grandma's sauce that's in my first cookbook. And we keep that on hand at all times. And for me it's the sauce that matters and I'll eat it over sauteed garlic spinach or you know, roasted broccoli or whatever. I don't really care what the vehicle is, it's the sauce that matters to me.
2: Totally. <laughs> yeah. I noticed you have a lasagna recipe I do. in the book. Which- which is kind of creative because you use your recipe for little rounds, yep. grain-free uh, like wraps. wraps. Yeah.
3: Yeah. So I started making those ages ago, and they were more – I used them in enchiladas for a little while. Mm-hmm. And they're softer. They're almost like a crepe kind of texture. But if you do them thin enough – and you layer them in that lasagna, you really do get that kind of texture and the, the feeling of a layered lasagna. And it works really well. And they get soft enough while they bake, you know, that mm-hmm. they kind of absorb some of that sauce but not, like, mushy. You don't completely lose them. So that's one of my favorites because I love lasagna. So, And then there's a nut, like a cashew-based cheese that's in there so that it keeps it dairy-free, too. Cool. Yeah.
2: I love baking, but one of the things I did not realize until I read your book is that yeast really works as a leavening agent. When it interacts with gluten. It's true. I somehow went my whole life not knowing. Yes,
3: Yeah. There's a reaction that happens that that kind of causes the gluten to become more stretchy. Mm -hmm. And so that's the yeast and the gluten do work hand in hand. So uh, I stopped using yeast for that reason for a while because I thought, well, what's the point? But then I realized in this book when I was trying to create a really good grain-free pizza crust and a really good bread that had – and bagels – and it was mm-hmm. the yeast flavor that was missing. So, you know, you don't get the the stretchy nature that comes with that kind of conventional baking. But it's the taste that I think is authentic to those specific recipes and that was really lacking. Because I had made bagels and pizza crusts in my last books. And they were fine texture-wise, but they didn't have that yeasty kind of bite at the end. And so these new ones taste so much more authentic and they they give me what I'm what I need now I'm like okay I don't miss anything it's okay
2: mm. it's funny because you just don't think of yeast as a flavor you think of it as a yeah. thing that makes things rise that makes
3: things rise but it really does it has this little bit of a fermented kind of taste it's not mm-hmm. quite sourdough tasting but it's just got this little bit of a flavor that I think is so familiar for people
2: yeah Are you a fan of nutritional yeast, too?
3: I do use it. I use it sparingly. That was that mac and cheese thing when I first started testing nutritional yeast back years ago. I didn't realize that you didn't need much. And I put like a cup of it into that. Oh. Cheese sauce and it was so gross. Oh, God. So gross. So I use it. I use it as a kind of a cheese sub, but I use just, you know, like a tablespoon at a time. Mm-hmm. Just a little bit. It, a little bit goes a long way with that. It starts to taste pretty funky if you get too much in there.
2: <laughs> I can't imagine. I noticed that you use a lot of arrowroot powder in the book. Can you tell me a little bit about arrowroot? I've never cooked with it or worked with it at all.
3: Yeah. So I started bringing it into my baked goods probably in my celebrations book, which was before this one and kind of before that, hadn't used it much but was noticing just the baked goods while they did the trick. They didn't quite have the texture of a conventional baked good that I wanted. Mm -hmm. And so I found that adding a little starch to the kind of my normal mix of almond flour and coconut flour, adding a little starch in there, just a little bit at a time, it didn't need much, but it kind of gave the baked good a little more structure, a little more pliability, um, kind of that, you know, like bouncy, stretchy nature that you get Mm -hmm. from muffins. So really, I think it, it almost mimics as well as it can gluten the protein of gluten so and kind of what gluten does in baked goods and mm-hmm. so i've i've used it now just to add kind of that that texture is really what it's what it's mostly used for
2: Air root is kind of similar to tapioca, right? Yeah, like that kind yep. of bouncy, kind of
3: texture-wise, and even cornstarch. It's just kind mm-hmm. of used in a similar fashion. But yeah, it's it's starchy. It's extracted from a tropical plant, um, but it's the powder, kind of white, powdery, and it's it's very similar to tapioca starch.
2: Cool. Yep. You live in the Bay Area, which is famous for bread. Yeah, some of the country's best bakeries are in the Bay Area, they are. arguably. Are there any cool bakeries that are doing interesting things with alternate flours or without grains or without gluten?
3: Not without grains, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. I wish if I could just go and buy some stuff here and there and not have to make it all from scratch, I would be stoked. It's like on my bucket list at some point to create a restaurant or bakery or kind of a fast casual restaurant where people can buy that stuff. But gluten-free, yes. There's – um. One called Mariposa, kind of, I think they're in Oakland or Berkeley, and they do some really great stuff. Um, Lots of really, really delicious gluten-free baked goods that I can buy for friends and family and my kids, but I can't personally eat them. So maybe some of those places will start to dabble in grain-free baking, hopefully.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. (laughs) How different is your kids' diet from yours? Do do you get to slip them some Ritz crackers from time to time, or do they... Stick to a
3: similar. Yeah, no Ritz crackers. Uh, They are 100% gluten free. And then they eat the same way as me, probably 85% of the time, just because that's what I make at home. So all of our cookies and muffins and special treats are all grain free. I buy some gluten free things for them to take to school because we have to have some packaged things for them on hand. And then they can tolerate rice. So I've let them have that. That's totally fine. So we do some brown rice pasta, some white rice with things. But for the most part, I would say 85% eat like me and the other, yeah, the other is just all gluten-free. Autoimmune disease is hereditary. Mm -hmm. And so they don't show any signs or symptoms yet, but I was diagnosed at 22. So I'm just kind of trying to do everything I can to prevent them from having to deal with what I had to deal with. Um, And then we've noticed just wheat and refined sugars and food dyes. We just noticed they they just get hyper and I don't think it's good for any little child's body to have that stuff in there. So I've just kept it out and have just, you know, turned to recreating things that make them feel like they're normal with everybody else and they love the stuff, which is great.
2: Yeah, that's great. One of the things you write about a lot on Against All Grain is your diagnosis and sort of the process of figuring out what your diet would look like after that diagnosis of ulcerative colitis. How many other bloggers, cookbook authors are writing about that? Have you sort of found a community after starting to write about it yourself?
3: Yeah, you know, um not a lot of bloggers and authors I would say are writing about it. There's definitely become a huge community around just real foods and healthy recipes and there's a ton of other cookbook authors out there that I've gotten to become friends with along the way, but Nobody really has the same story that I have. Um, And I think that's why my particular community and my fans have just become so tight-knit because there's somebody... That they can relate to. And that's really what my goal was when I started blogging was because I felt so isolated. Mm -hmm. I felt so lost in the journey. Nobody was, you know, being, nobody could tell me about food. And I just wanted to share that story, you know, and, and now it's invited just such an incredible community of people who are dealing with different chronic illnesses, same, you know, same as me, but, um, maybe a different disease and they're finding health through this. I think, it's just been really amazing to see them come together and, you know, to connect on social media together and getting to kind of have, even if they don't live in the same place, to have that community. But, yeah, there's there's not a lot of um, other grain-free people that are writing about their stories as much. I mean, definitely on social media, there's people that have started sharing more. But, yeah, um, yeah I think that that kind of is what sets my my books and my community that that follows a lot uh, kind of a part is just that really intimate journey that I've shared that makes people feel like they're not alone.
2: Yeah, totally. I mean, because the first thing you do when you get any diagnosis is look it up on the internet. Totally. See who else is who out else there? Who else is like
3: you? Yep, yep. And that's what I did. So, and at that point, Facebook was just starting. I think you had to have a edu address to even sign up for it it was like just mm-hmm. going through the college campuses and there was not an instagram and you know so it was all really new and when i was first diagnosed i didn't have really anywhere to turn i mean i was googling it but there were some chat boards and stuff but not not the huge community that's formed around it now which has been really cool
2: yeah you mentioned that your book tour is almost done yes. and then you'll have a little time Yes. Yeah. What are you what have you been cooking this winter? Do you have any new obsessions? Anything
3: that you're into? I mean, you've been kept busy. Yeah. Yeah. um, I would say that that dairy free queso is like my comfort (laughs) food. I I've been on the road for almost two weeks and I couldn't get back all the way to the Bay Area to get back here to New York. So instead, I went to Nashville, which is like my second home. And I stayed with my best friend who lives there. And as soon as I landed off the plane, I was like, I've been out on the road and all I want is queso. And she loves it and her husband loves it. So we went and got the groceries and that was the first thing I made in the morning. So I would say I've been making a lot of that. Uh, And then I just do a lot of soup during the winter. So it's like my favorite comforting thing. I, you know, I love my instant pot for when I'm busy. And if I come home in between a trip, you know, a week long book tour trip, I can throw a bunch of chicken and veggies and homemade bone broth in there from the freezer and have comforting food that I feel like really nourishes me during that two days home before I'm back on planes and germs and little sleep and so those are kind of my favorite warm warm things
2: to how cook. about cooking goals this winter is there anything you're really trying to
3: learn or any recipes that you're really trying to crack oh gosh I mean I might get back to the pasta thing I've gotten mm-hmm. some requests for that on my tour just from the audience we do a Q&A at the end and you know, they they share their stories, but then they always, always ask for the things that they're still missing. So that would probably be it. And then I'll be working on my next book as soon as I'm home. So I'm just kind of starting to think about the recipes for that. That's my goal for the next couple months before summer hits with my kids out of school. I've got to get some some good time in the kitchen. Can you tell us anything about the next book? Do you know anything about it? I think so. Although it's funny, what what we're thinking about doing and talking just with my editor and my agent and what my fans are requesting is actually slightly different. They definitely want what I'm doing, but what they really want first is a kid's cookbook. Um, there's just so many people that are using this way of eating for their children that have chronic illness or the autism and Asperger's community uses grain-free and dairy-free and they really want want to get their kids in the kitchen and involved, but they're also asking lots about how do you handle birthday parties or school Mm -hmm. parties and, you know, functions. And so that one is really on my heart, Um, but I think the next one is going to be 30 30 minute type meals, condensed ingredient lists, um, just trying to make this accessible for people, busy people, working moms or people just with, you know, just busy lifestyles to be able to eat well and healthy and feel like they're feeding their family or their friends nourishing meals, but not spending hours in the kitchen. So I think that that might be the next one. And then the kids book hopefully will be following that
2: (laughs) cool and in the meantime people can make the animal crackers from your current book yes and gummy
3: vitamins yeah so you'll see that and eat what you love so the kids book has been something i've wanted to do for years but to you know greater market not everybody has kids so i usually sneak a lot of kid recipes into the books and that is definitely the elderberry gummies the um, animal crackers the pizza pockets the pop tarts i mean those are all things that i feel like I do have 3 kids and so I always create recipes that I hope they'll eat too. But we all have a kid like kid in us with food, mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. Like those are all things I grew up eating that have so much just so many memories tied to them and so even as an adult, I love eating those things every bit as much as I did as a kid. So, I try to kind of put the recipes in there that'll hold people over that want a kid's cookbook, um, but that'll also be that'll, you know, be good for the kid and all of us. <laughs>
2: Cool. Well, happy
3: cooking. Thanks thank for coming Thank you. On the podcast, yeah, thank India. you so much for having me.
2: The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Anna Hiesel. The show is produced by Gabrielle Lewis, studio recordings by Pat Stango, theme music by Steve Rydell. Interviews are recorded live at Books Are Magic in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn, and at Penguin Random House Studios in Manhattan visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com. Thanks for listening.